0: Today, what we're going to talk about is becoming a world-class Christian. But before we kind of move into that, I just want to do a little business beforehand. I know it is the end of Thanksgiving weekend, and uh, I realize that some of you may still be in the turkey coma uh, that comes from that. And so I thought we'd have a little time of confession beforehand. I heard someone say today that they never hear a good sermon on gluttony anymore. And I said that's because most of us are gluttons. And we don't want to do that. So how many of you ate a little too much this weekend? Let me see your hands. Amen. All right. How many of you knew you were eating too much as you were eating? Let me see that. How many of you looked at that plate when you got it on there and said, that's way too much for me to eat, but you just went on ahead with it anyways? Let me see that. All right. It looks like we're all together then. All right. So let's just consider this a moment of open confession. All right. We don't do that in the Baptist church a whole lot, but Scripture teaches us that it's okay and appropriate to do that. But let's uh, think of that as a moment of open confession. Let me tell you, we had a great weekend. We went to West Tennessee. I uh, got to see my parents and Susan's parents and had a, a great day Thursday in Jackson, a great day Friday in uh in dyersburg and so it was a great weekend for us And went back we we uh went back and got to jackson yesterday and i was just going to stay long enough we had to get back early last night had to get ready for this morning to watch uh, about to the third or fourth quarter of the tennessee game when i figured tennessee would have everything in hand and i wouldn't have to worry about it and i sat in jackson and watched that entire game so we didn't get home late till last night. So if I get a little tired in the middle of it, I'll just uh, I'll take a little nap. That'd be all right. Some of y'all take naps anyways during the sermon. Well, I'll just uh, join you every now and then. So you don't think I see that, but I do. But over the weekend, I forgot something. Uh, You know how how when you travel, you always forget something, and Susan and the boys were already in Jackson, so it was left up to me to pack everything, and I I packed most of what I needed. I got all the essential stuff except for a razor, and so by the end of the weekend, I was looking pretty uh, wooly. I, I mean, I wasn't looking like Jake, don't get me wrong, but I was... I was getting to where I was kind of wooly, and so this morning when I shaved, it was a tough beard. Now, ladies, you don't—I want to ask if you know what that's like, because I don't want to know. But, but for guys, you know, when you don't shave a few days, it gets tough, and and I got a little nick. This morning as I was shaving, it reminded me of a story about a pastor one Sunday morning that got up and said to his congregation, he said, uh, I just want you to know that I apologize for the bandage on my face right from the beginning. Said so I was shaving this morning and I kept thinking about the sermon and in the middle of thinking about the sermon, I cut myself shaving. Well, they went through the whole service, and after the service, they had the offering at the end like we do, and they took up the offering, and at the end of the service, people would have a place to write notes, you know, like you do. You've got that little thing in there, and we invite our guests to fill that out, but there's a place for you to write notes and comments and put that in the offering plate. And he got a little note addressed specifically to him without any name of whoever was writing it on it, but it just said at the bottom, it just said, you know, I would like to leave a comment for the pastor. And then as he opened it up, all it said was, next time, think about the shaving, cut the sermon. I just want you to know this morning, I didn't cut the sermon, I cut my face. So, take your Bibles turn to Romans chapter 10. And we are going to talk today about being passionately devoted to becoming a world-class Christian. And, you know, we talk in, in, in... Uh, Our culture today, there is discussion about world-class everything. There's world-class athletes and and world-class business and all of this world global understanding. And today we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a world-class Christian? What does it mean? And we're going to look at a chapter in Scripture in Romans when Paul is writing about the outworking of what God has done. If you've studied the book of Romans, you know that throughout the first few chapters of the book of Romans, Paul lays out one of the greatest theological discussions that you can ever find. He walks from the beginning of Romans 1 about how we're condemned in Christ all the way through till he gets to Romans 10, and when he gets here, he talks about how we come to faith in Christ, and it is a progression from one to the other, and it is an amazing, discussion it is in the midst of those passages of scripture that we find things like for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god right It's in the midst of that discussion we find Romans 6.23 that says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in the midst of this discussion that we get what we call the Roman road, where you can literally take someone who is lost without Christ, who does not have a hope without Christ, and lead them through a discussion of what it means to follow Christ with their lives. And as he transitions to the second part of the book, and he's still doing that in chapter 10, he begins to say, this is the outworking of it. This is what it means for us. This is how we live our lives based upon that. And in chapter 10, Paul is going to work out for us what it means to be involved in the call of God to the nations. Now remember, Paul's writing this to a group of Christians where? Romans would mean it was a group of Christians in. Good, you're still here. So he's in writing to some Christians in Rome, and he says, this is what I want you to understand, Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1. And we're going to read through verse, uh, through verse 15, and so just stick with me as we read through it once, and then we'll dissect it as we go. But this is what Paul writes. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is, is that they might be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Verse 5. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up. But what does it say? It says the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. And that is the word of faith we are proclaiming that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In chapter 10, what Paul is going to remind us is that we ought to be passionately devoted about taking God's word. And A couple of weeks ago, we talked about sharing our personal testimony, sharing our faith. And really, that is more one-on-one. People we know, people in our influence, people in our circle. But if we are to stop just sharing with people in our circle, then we miss God's call to take it much farther than that. And so this morning we have several things that I want to help us to understand about what God is calling us to do. And the first thing that we have to do if we're going to see what God's called us to do is we must understand the motivation for missions. We must understand the motivation for missions. Look what Paul says in verse 1 again and think about it as he says it and then we're going to give you three things that happen. He says, brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Part of the reason that we have difficulty any time in our lives figuring out what God wants us to do or following through when God calls us to do something is we lack the proper motivation. One of the things that makes coaches great in the sports arena is they know how to motivate each other and how to motivate their athletes to perform. Now, sometimes motivation is internal. And we say that there are times in our lives when it just seems natural that we're motivated to play well because of circumstances or what's going on. Last Tuesday night, last Tuesday night, Put a work order in on that door, I guess. (laughs) Last Tuesday night, because the boys and Susan were gone and we had service here, there was a a little volleyball game afterwards. Several of you stuck around to watch the volleyball game, and I hadn't been able to play volleyball all year. And so I, I had the opportunity to play, and so I agreed to play. And I was kind of taking it easy for the first little bit, mainly because I did not know if my body would handle jumping and running and all of that. I hadn't done that in a little bit and didn't know how it would handle it. In our first rotation to the front of the, you know, the line, and I got right there at the net, there was, uh, there was a guy across the net who named nameless, but most people call him Jimbo. Who just said something like, now I've got you where I want you. (laughs) Right? And as a pastor, I thought, just let it go. As a volleyball, well-conditioned athlete, I thought, it's time to get him. And I just want you to know, I clicked into another gear, and I played the rest of that game at a different level when Jimbo was around, because my motivation had been changed. Now, I won't tell you, well, I guess I'm about to, that it took until Sunday to recover, that's today, from the game on Tuesday night because of the way I played. But my motivation changed how I played. And one of the things that happens when we talk about mission is sometimes we miss the real motivation for what we're doing. And so we don't play or act like we ought to. Here's three things about our motivation. First of all, it starts with the heart of God. It starts With God's heart. You see, God's heart from the very beginning has been for a people to be called to be a light unto the nations. He created Adam and Eve, and when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, he began to reconstruct what was going to happen. And what he did is he called out a people for himself through Abraham, and said that he was going to, through his family, be a blessing for the rest of the nations. Now, the Israelites lost that sense. I mean, if you look throughout what happens with Moses, if you look what happens uh, throughout the life of Joshua, if you look what happens in David, if you look what happens in his descendants, and you see all of that is happening, God constantly says that he is doing this, blessing them, helping them, giving them favor with him, helping them to conquer other peoples, doing miraculous things so that the nations will look upon them and say that their God is the God. You see, God's heart was never to have his own little people group and not worry about everybody else. Think about the story of Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah, don't you? Jonah's sitting there one day and God says, I need you to go to the Ninevites. And Jonah says, no thanks. Have you heard how nasty those people are? Have you heard what they do to people? And God says, listen, Jonah, I want you to go to those people. And so Jonah says, here's what I'll do, God. I'll buy a ticket and get as far away as I can. And he tries. God sends a storm, a little turbulence. Jonah gets thrown into the sea. A big fish swallows him up. And in the belly of a big fish, Jonah has a come-to-God moment. Now, I don't know what it takes for you to have one of those moments, but I would imagine sitting in the belly of a big fish would be one of those times when you might figure out what's going on with your life. And Jonah talks through this. And he goes to the people, and you remember he walks through, and all he says is, 40 days from now, you are going to be destroyed. He walks through the town, and I can imagine that in the voice of Jonah was a little contempt. God, you said I had to come. You swallowed me up in that fish. I'm here, and so now I'm walking through these streets, and I'm going to proclaim to them that they're going to die, and they're all going to die, and it's going to be wonderful that they die, God. 40 days from now, you will be destroyed. And what happens? They repent. And God releases his judgment. And like a good follower of God, Jonah gets all excited about that, doesn't he? No, he gets mad. And you know what he says? This is what I love about what Jonah says. Because he knew the heart of God, he just didn't like it. He says, God, the reason I never wanted to go to them is because I knew you would save them. God's heart has always been for the people of the nations. You come into the New Testament. Jesus, it says in the book of John, says that he must go through Samaria. He didn't have to. Nobody else did. But he must go through because God had an appointment for him with a woman of Samaritan descent. If you look in the book of Acts, you have Philip going out and Philip is leading a mass crusade revival in one town and he gets called to go talk to one Ethiopian official in another. If you look at Peter, he is eating one day up on his roof and he gets a vision from God and the veil comes down and he is sent to Cornelius, a Gentile's home, and said to go there and to eat whatever he eats because my message must go to him. Paul takes the message wherever God would lead him and it leads to the book of Revelation as we talked about earlier where it says that when we get to heaven, God's desire is that we will gather around the throne and that there will be people of every tribe and nation and tongue and every color you can imagine and we will be singing the the praises of god right there Now, i don't know if any of you have ever had the experience of sitting in a worship service where there are more than one language being said but i can tell you some of the most meaningful worship in my life has happened when i haven't understood a word of what's being said On my trips to Brazil, there always comes an end-of-the-week moment when we gather with the people and they sing and they pray and they worship in Portuguese. And you know what one of the most amazing moments is? Is when they sing a song we know in English. And we begin to sing with all our heart in English. And they're singing with all their heart in Portuguese. And you get just a small tiny glimpse of what it will be like when billions of people will gather around the throne in thousands of languages declaring the wonders of God. And when I think about that, I get excited because God's heart for the nations is my motivation for missions. Here's the second thing. Not only does it begin with the heart of God, it is fueled by prayer. Now, you know what Paul says? He said, it is my heart's desire. Here's the thing. When you truly begin to follow Jesus, when you live for Him, when you seek out Him, your desires become His desires. Or better yet, His desires become yours. But here's what he says. It is my heart's desire and my intense or fervent praying that the people of Israel be saved. Here's the thing. If you want to have a real motivation for missions, not only do you need to seek God's heart and ask Him what His heart for the nations is, but you need to be constantly in prayer that God will give you a heart for His heart. And I can tell you, the closer you get to God and the stronger your prayer life is, the stronger your desire to see His name proclaimed in the nations will be. The truth is that... Our motivation for missions begins with the heart of God, is fueled by prayer. And the third thing is, it is something that grows with understanding. What I mean by that is, the more you begin to pray, the more you begin to think, and the more you begin to seek out what God is doing among the nations. The more you begin to ask questions about what God is doing in His heart for missions, the more you do that, the more you understand. And the more you understand, the more you desire to know. And the more you know, the more you understand. And before long, you are feeding yourself through the desire of God's heart, through God's Word, through prayer. And as you grow in understanding, you grow And desire to see his name proclaimed. If you want to show me a a Christian. That is unconcerned about global missions. Then I'll show you a Christian. That isn't digging very deep into God's word. That's not living a life of prayer. And that doesn't understand what God's heart is. If we're going to be actively involved in missions, we need to first understand the motivation for missions. Paul says it this way, My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Now I know that you just read that sentence and it's just a sentence there, but if you can look at what he says, if you can understand what he's doing, what he's saying there is the intense desire, the passion of my life, everything I'm about, what I wish more than anything, if I could have one wish in my life, it would be that the Israelites would be saved in fact in another place paul says that his desire for the israelites is so great to be saved that he would give up his own salvation if it meant that the nation would come to him now, i want you to think about that for a minute i want you to think about what paul says about his motivation for missions he says my motivation is so great that i would give up my very salvation if i knew it would meant more people would come to christ and the next time you wonder about whether you're properly motivated for missions, whether you're properly thinking about missions in the right way, the thing that you ought to ask yourself is, am I willing to sacrifice so much that I would be willing to see my own salvation given up if it would mean that people would come to Christ because of it? That is motivation. Here's the second thing that we must understand if we're going to see global missions done in the right way. Not only must we understand the motivation, but we must understand the message of missions. We must understand the message of missions. This is what I think verse 2 is so amazing about. Because it reminds us that it doesn't matter how zealous or uh, serious you are or, or, or how sincere you are in your faith. If it's not faith in the right way, then it's not any good. Verse 2 says, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. And what I love about that is what it says is that I can testify that they seek after God with all they are. They go after him with everything they can be. They truly want to see God. But the problem is they're going after it in the wrong way. Verse 3. They did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Here's what he's saying there is that any time we attempt to get to God, our attempts lead to condemnation. Our attempts condemn us. You can write there there, write that down under A that our attempts at God will condemn us. What he says is the people of Israel are doing all that they know to do. They're doing it the best way they can. The problem is they're not doing it in the right way with the right person. A couple of weeks ago we talked about that there is only one name under heaven by which men might be saved. And what he's saying is they missed out on the message of Jesus. And as a result, no matter how good they are, no matter how hard they try, they are not going to be followers of him. Now that comes into play in two important reasons. Locally that comes into play because we all have people, know people, have talked to people that are just good old boys or good old girls. They're just good people. And you ask people about them and they're just good people. But the problem is they've never come to a moment where they have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They may be good people, but they're not good people for Christ or as a result of Christ. And as a result, they are still condemned by God. And that should motivate us in missions towards our people around us to share our faith. But it also means that there are literally billions of people in this world that have never heard the name of Jesus. And our responsibility is to help as much as we can to make sure those billions of people that have not heard the name of Jesus have an opportunity to hear the name of Jesus. Somebody said that we spend a ton of ink talking about the second coming of Christ. Anybody ever read a book on the second coming? Novel book? Now some of you aren't raising your hands, I know you have. And that's not a bad thing to talk about the second coming of Christ, but this guy said, it is amazing to me that we put as much attention on the second coming of Christ when there are billions of people that still haven't heard about the first coming of Christ. And no matter how hard they try, no matter how hard they work, and no matter what they think, unless they come to a point where they place their faith in Jesus Christ, they will not be accepted by God. Because our attempts condemn. In Romans chapter 1, what he says is that there is enough revelation from God on this earth that we ought to seek after God. The problem is we seek it in all the wrong ways. And so our attempts condemn. The second thing that we need to understand about the message is that Scripture says that not only do our attempts condemn, but this is the good news. God's offer redeems. Look at verse 4. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. What Paul says is, this is what I wish the Israelites would understand. This is the desire of my heart, that I've got to take this message. The motivation is to take this message to them, that they are trying on their own, and as a result, they are condemned. But we must understand that God has offered a way. I saw this week, and... People use this kind of analogy a lot when they're talking about Christ and saving faith. I saw this week where there have been some breakthroughs in stem cell research stuff. And stem cells is one of those hot topic issues. And I'm one of those guys, that don't believe you ought to ever harvest stem cells from embryos, that they are too important and too, uh, too uh, significant in the sight of God to do that. But the big breakthrough came because they found out they could take adult stem cells and make them restart. Now, I don't understand a bit of what all that means, but this is what I know. Apparently, it means a whole lot. And every news publication, every nightly news, every worldwide thing I could find had something about that stem cell breakthrough. Why? Because it offers hope for people that are sick. Sometimes as Christians we get blasted for trying to take our message and give it to people that aren't part of our faith. And I say, well, if they can take a message about a physical ailment and what may break through in order to find cures for people that are physically ill, why can't we take something that is going to help them spiritually and eternally and we think is the cure for everything that ails them and broadcast it to whoever it is? But the thing is, we'll get around the coffee table, and even as Christians, we'll talk about everything under the sun that all the news is talking about, and we won't talk about this most important thing. Our attempts condemn. God's offer redeems. Here's the third thing. We must make a choice. Verse 9 and 10. Two of those famous verses. It says that everybody gets the chance. And if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, it is your mouth that you confess and are saved. Here's the thing that Paul is setting up here. He's just saying at the beginning, listen, this is my motivation for missions. I want you to understand my heart because my desire is for people to come to know Christ. Secondly, I want you to understand the message that I'm giving for missions. And it's simply that our attempts condemn, God's gift saves or redeems, and we all have a choice to make. He's just setting them up to say, here, this is the basis, the background for what I'm about to tell you. But what you have to understand is that it is a motivation to take this message to the people and let them decide. But then he moves on to the application. And not only must we understand the motivation for missions, not only must we understand the message of missions, but we must understand the mandate for missions. Look at what it says in verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This weekend, we, uh, at my parents' house, had one of those nights when everything kind of calmed down. At, at Susan's family's house, we don't ever have those moments of everything calming down. There are five children, Eli's age and under, including three tri- three triplets. that's are triplets, there are three of them. Uh, triplets that are age two. And so we have Eli, who is almost five, triplets that just turned two, and Luke that is closing in on a year and a half. And at their house, there is never a moment of quiet. I, I don't remember any time when we've all been there when all of them have been down for a nap at the same time. It just doesn't happen. At my parents' house, it's just Luke and Eli, and it's a little less chaotic. And so on Friday night at my parents' house, we decided to rent a movie. And Susan and I, we hadn't watched a movie in years, probably. It's been a while. And so there were lots of choices out there. And we decided on a movie called Evan Almighty. I don't know if you've seen Evan Almighty. It was one of those promoted to churches. And, and, and I'm not suggesting you go out and rent it or anything. But uh, it, Eli enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. Thought it was a pretty good movie. But there was a moment in there when it was a pretty poignant moment. And the story of Evan Almighty is that Evan Evan Baxter is a guy that gets elected to Congress and his slogan is that he's going to change the world. And so one night as his wife tells him that she prayed that God would bring their family closer together, he gets on his knees and he prays that God will bring his family closer together and then he prays that he would truly change the world. And so God, in a modern day tale, calls him to build an ark, just like Noah did. And all these animals start to come to convince him to do it. and So he begins to build the ark, and he ends up losing his place in Congress, and suspended from there, and his family thinks he's weird, and they move out. And there comes a moment when he's walking along, going to the ark, and God God in the story makes his beard grow real long, and makes him wear a robe and all that stuff. And as he's going to the ark, someone says, How did you get this call? What makes you special that you got this call? And then Evan Baxter says, what I think is a great message, he says, I don't think I'm special. He said, I think everyone's called. I just listened. Now, you know, you don't often find great spiritual theological truths in the middle of major motion pictures, but that is one. And the mandate for missions is that God has called each and every one of us. It made me think of a quote by William Booth, the guy that, the guy that has started one of the greatest uh, ministries this country has ever seen. You'll see the Santas ringing the bells soon. He said, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. The way Paul says it is, that they've got to hear this message. But the problem is, if we don't send someone, they won't have anybody to speak. And if they don't have anybody to speak, they can't hear. And if they can't hear, they can't obey. And so he puts the mandate for missions squarely on our shoulders. What are you doing to see God's message taken to the nations? Because here's the fourth thing. We must become involved. We must become mobilized in missions. We must become mobilized in missions. Now, there are two things down there at the bottom that will help us to become mobilized in order that we would be those people that said that our feet are beautiful because we have given the good news. There are two things at the bottom, and the first one is this. We must share a global vision. Share a global vision. Let me just give you some statistics. Statistics sometimes don't mean a lot, but these statistics represent people, and I think that they're important to understand. The latest calculation is that there are around 6.6 billion people on the earth. Somewhere around there. It goes goes up all the time. And by best calculation, around 1.8 billion of them have little or no chance to hear the gospel of Christ. If you go to an adequate understanding of the gospel of Christ, you find out that 55.4% of the world's population is without an adequate knowledge of the gospel. Most don't even know who Jesus is. And here's the thing that just kind of stirs my heart. Today, 138,403 people will die without saving faith. In Jesus Christ. 138,403 people will die. Destined for an eternity in hell. You see the problem is. When you understand God's heart for missions. When you know the message for missions. And you realize the mandate for missions. The only thing that you can do. Is to participate in it. Not only must we share a global vision. Secondly, we must get involved in a global strategy. And let me give you four things this morning that you can do to be involved in a global strategy. First of all, you can pray. Now I know that seems like the simple answer, but it's the truth. There's a great story of uh, Paul in Acts. And it's a story of this people helping to him escape. He got in trouble a little bit because he was sharing his faith. And they put him in a bucket and they put him over the side. And these people are holding the ropes as they lower him down so that he can get out and that he can go and share his faith. And as they're talking about that and as they're doing that, a, a pastor who read that story said, the truth is that many times we are called to hold the rope for those in the bucket. And what he means is that oftentimes what we are called to do and all we're called to do is to be that support, that lifeline, holding them together so that when they're out in the field, we can give them support as we pray for them. And if you can do nothing else this morning, I'm going to give you three other things. If nothing else you do, pray. Every week when you come in here, up on the screen are missionaries' names. You can pray for them just each, morning, maybe maybe on Sunday morning, you get here a little early and you look up and the renouncements are rolling through, and those names flash up there. I know there is no way you can write down all those names in the time we have. but just pick one and write it down down in the middle somewhere. I am subscribed to the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board's birthday list on my email. And so the first of every month, I get an email with all the missionaries that are having birthdays that month, and I just pray for them. You can pray. Here's a second thing you can do. It'll go up on the screen. You can love the lost. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Here's the reality. Every time you win someone to the Lord, then you are helping global missions. Whether it's in Goodlettsville, Tennessee, or whether it's in India somewhere. And part of what we can do here is to help to bring the name of Christ to the forefront is just to love people here. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but that's a part of the global strategy. Here's the third thing. You can give. In just a few days, we're going to begin our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And 100% of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering goes to the field. And you can give. Just sacrificially give. Maybe you say this year as you're buying presents for everybody else and you're getting this and you're getting that and you're figuring out your budget. Make sure in your budget you figure out how much you're going to give for the cause of Christ this Christmas. We have a goal of around 25000 here and that's a good goal, but we ought to go over that goal. My prayer is that we're going to give a lot more than that. We've got a lot of events coming up, and things happening, a lot of good things to give to, but there's nothing you can give better than to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. And here's the last thing. You can pack your bags. Let me tell you one of the most spiritual things you can do is to go get a passport. Let me just see. How many of you here have a passport? That's good. If you didn't raise your hand, go get one. All right? Here's the reason. It's a hassle. Amen? Anybody got one recently? It's a hassle. And the truth is, God may say to you, it is time for you to go, and I've got this trip planned for you, and you think, well, I ain't got a passport. It'll cost you a little bit of money, but it'll prepare you for what God's going to do. I've got to get my passport renewed. I've got it ten years ago, and you know when I got it, I got it for one trip. And I thought I'd make one trip in it, and then I wouldn't worry about it. That thing's been stamped four times. You never know what God's going to do. And then when the opportunities come, you go. If God gives you the health, you go. The truth is that God calls all of us to go. The question is whether we respond. And over the next several years, we're going to have plenty of opportunities for you to go and be a part of a global mission strategy. Here's the reason you go. First of all, because God calls you. Second of all, you will get a brand new vision for what it means to take God's message across the world. I had a missions professor at Union that said to me, and I've heard it a lot of other places, but the first time I ever heard it was in a missions professor that told me this at Union who said that missions is caught more than it's taught. And here's the thing I could stand up here and talk to you for another 45 minutes about missions, which I'm not going to do, but I could. And I could give you a sermon every week for the next year about missions and it wouldn't do near what it would do if 15 of you went with me to Brazil. It just wouldn't. Because being there changes your heart. There's a funny thing that happens when I go back to Brazil now. I've been four times. Is that when that plane lands... And we walk into that airport where Portuguese is being spoken. The first time I remember it was the strangest feeling in the world. It felt like we were in a completely different place. It felt like everything was strange and weird. And you didn't know how to order. And you didn't know how to do this. And all of that kind of stuff. Now, when I touch down and we get into that airport, I literally think, I'm home. It's not home like here. And when I'm done with the week, I'm ready to get back here. But part of my heart is there. And every once in a while, I'll just pull those pictures out and I'll look at them. And the thing that has happened in my life since I began to make those trips is that I no longer ask God, Do I have to go? The question I ask now is, God, can I fit it in to go? Because everything in my heart wants to go. God, can I make room for it? God. You're going to have to hold me back if you don't want me to. This is the time of year when in Baptist churches we talk about global missions. I want you to know that part of what we're going to do over the next several years is not talk about it just at this time of year. We're going to talk about it all the time because it's God's heart. My question for you is the same question I asked earlier is, what part has God called you to play? What part has God called you to play and taking his message to the nations. Let's bow for prayer.